Welcome, everybody, to the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke. Guys, I got a great one today. We're doing some cardiology work with the one and only Dr. Anna McManame, uh, Dr. Mac, as she goes by. Gosh, she's a joy. She's a treasure. She's a treat. You are going to get so much information stuffed into your brain, so many beautiful little pearls that you're going to use uh, in your clinical life. Oh, this is such a good episode. Guys, that's it. I'm not going to oversell it. Let's get into this. This is your show, we're glad you're here, we want to help you in your veterinary career, welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Anna McManamy, how are you? Good, how are you, Andy? I am really good. I am super glad that you are here. Uh, you have you have been my uh, my favorite discovery of the of the year so far in twenty twenty two. I sat next to you just at in Orlando at the VMX conference, and you are just delightful. And I enjoyed talking with you so much. And Thank I you. said, "Would you come on and talk to me about some cases?" And you, uh, like like a sucker, you were like, "Okay," and here you are. <laughs> Like I said, I'll talk about the heart as long as someone will listen. So, oh yeah, it's awesome. Well, thank you for being here. You are uh, you are a board certified veterinary cardiologist. You are a uh, clinical professor at Purdue's College of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, you are a lecturer. Like I said, I met you at uh, VMX, and I asked you what you were talking about, and you told me some stuff, and I was like, that's really cool. And so, uh, so thank you for making time to be here. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, I have a case for you. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. All right, I have a. 12-year-old male-neutered Maltese named Higgins. Higgins, uh, Higgins' parents love him. Like, they love him a lot. Higgins has had a heart murmur for a long time. Like, as long as I can remember, you know, going back to young age, he's had a, he's had a heart murmur. He is in now for coughing. And that bothers me a lot because he's had this heart murmur and now he's coughing. What I'm tripping up on a bit is the fact that um, I'm listening to his chest. I'm not hearing any crackles, any wheezes. There's maybe some upper airway kind of referred sounds. He pants all the time. And so he's panting, which I go, but then I listen. And I'm like, I don't hear anything as lungs. I take uh, chest rads and he's got like this mild bronco interstitial pattern. They kind of look just like old dog lungs to me. Like I'm, what I'm not seeing is a bunch of fluid around, you know, uh, his, his heart. Uh, he doesn't have just dis, uh, distortional displacement of the trachea, anything like that. His heart doesn't seem to be abnormally shaped. Um, let me just pause here and ask you and say, given given Higgins and kind of what I'm laying down, is, am I right to be concerned about this cough? I, I don't feel like he's a heart congestive heart failure guy and I'm worried about putting on medicines forever. Uh, can you give me some guidance? How do you treat this, Anna? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot that we can break down. Um, I think the most important thing that you did is honestly taking the chest x-rays. So I would say that this is something that I can't emphasize the importance of it enough. And I think with cardiologists, everyone assumes that our most important tool is echo, but really the chest x-rays is the most important test that we have, especially anytime we're worried about congestive heart failure, which I think is a very appropriate differential for any coughing dog with a murmur, regardless of its chronicity. So um, I'd say kudos for that, first of all, because that's really, really important and really helpful. Um, 
The other thing I want to comment on is, you know, the chronicity of the heart murmur. I get a lot of these dogs that have a heart murmur, quote unquote, forever since they were young. And so sometimes I want to make sure, is it really for forever, forever? Is it a congenital heart murmur? Or are we talking like for just years now? Because that can change my differentials. Yeah, I think I think I probably overstated it. I think it's probably for years now. I I don't know that he was that he was born this way. Yeah. And we get that all the time. And it's from our clients to say, oh, well, he's always had a heart murmur. But when we say always, it's like, oh, for the past five years, but we're just keeping an eye on it. That's usually what comes in. So with these, knowing the location of the murmur is really helpful. So with the small breed dog, an older dog that's had a chronic murmur, I'd say mitral valve disease is the most likely. So that's going to be a left-sided systolic murmur. Um, we call them apical just because they're lower towards the mitral valve instead of towards the the stern or excuse me, towards the, the spine as a dorsal um, basal or murmur. Um, so that's a very classic presentation. Things that can really help me further evaluate if it's congestive heart failure. So history in addition to the x-rays. Okay. Your physical exam also helps. I think you've explained the most common problem is the auscultation of the lungs doesn't always give you the answer. Uh, right. They're panting. They're hard to listen to. The absence of crackles and wheezes doesn't rule out congestive heart failure, um, but hearing crackles and wheezes doesn't rule it in either. So I think the x-rays, you have to come back to the x-rays and part of the history. So with with x-rays, the classic findings of left-sided congestive heart failure, the three things that I always look for as my checklist is, is the left atrium enlarged? So there are objective ways of looking at that. We call it the vertebral left atrial score. And there's some really cool resources out online, like on VIN, um, some Lance Visser papers that have come out. But this is a newer thing. It's a, it's a vertebral left atrial score. It's a way to measure the left atrium and compare it to the spinous processes. Um, you can look at it subjectively. So is that carina? Is that where the tracheal bifurcation exists? Is that pushed dorsally towards the spine? Yes or no? Um, if they don't have that, then the left atrium isn't big. The second thing I look for is, are the pulmonary veins dilated? So you have your pulmonary arteries, then your bronchus, and then your vein. Your veins are central and ventral. That's the rule when you're looking at x-rays. If those pulmonary veins are bigger than the pulmonary arteries, then that's dilated. That's distended. And that tells me I have high left atrial pressure. The last thing I look for is an appropriate interstitial to alveolar pattern in the caudodorsal to perihilar lung space. And that one I think is the most tricky because that's the location in the radiographs where it's the thickest part of the chest that we're shooting through in the dog. Mm-hmm. So on a lateral x-ray, it always looks what we call busy, just quote unquote yeah. busy. It's, it's especially if the animal's panting or if they're expiratory, those are the lung fields that collapse. And so we see like this busier pattern in that caudodorsal lung field. So it's very easy to psych yourself out and think that there's truly edema there. So yeah. again, checking yourself, is the left atrium big? Are the pulmonary veins distended? And then on the dorsoventral or the ventral dorsal view, so the importance of the orthogonal view is, again, looking at those lung fields, looking for that classic circle of the left atrium at the six o'clock position of the heart. Okay. So those, that's my checklist every time. Okay, I got that. Can you give me some best practices on getting radiographs on these little panting dogs? I mean, uh, what do I, are there things that I, I either want to do or, or say to my technicians, hey, really try to catch this on, on inspiration and any, anything like give me, give me any pointers to get the most useful rads that I can get. Yeah. I think the positioning and technique is huge. Um, I think any, any time, I think everyone's kind of understaffed, which is a huge problem, but yeah. having enough hands to take them, I think is really important. 
Um, especially if you do think this animal has congestive heart failure, they might be a little bit more delicate. So having enough yeah. hands to restrain the patient safely. Um, I think a little bit of butorphanol in anybody is never wrong. Um, it's very safe for the heart. It is a cough suppressant. So if the animal's actively coughing while you're trying to position it on its side, butorphanol, whether that's IV or intramuscular, works really well. Um, if that's you give it great. IM, though, you got to wait about 15 minutes for it to take effect. Yeah, but, no, that's super yeah. useful. Uh, that was exactly my question is, you know, he's he like we're talking about a, a little dog mm -hmm. that squirms and doesn't like to be on his side. And I'm yeah. going, I don't want to sedate this guy. <laughs> that, no, that's oh, that's gold. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing I'd say is cardiologists, we actually prefer the dorsal ventral projection instead of a ventral dorsal. Um, sometimes it's easier to get and it's less stressful for the animal. So don't ever feel defeated if you can't get the VD, but you can get the DV. Okay. okay. All right. Perfect. So if I'm looking at this little beast and uh, let's kind of walk it through both ways to so just say, uh, let's say that I, I don't feel like there's uh, enlargement of the left atrium. Uh, you know, I'm not seeing these classic signs how how seriously do you take this you know what i mean when, when he's coughing things like that where, where does that lead you and they're going to go back and say if i see uh enlargement left atrium i start to see this elevated carinus things like that uh, i'm assuming that's a pretty significant bifurcation in our in our diagnostic path yeah yeah i would agree with that so let's say the for the first path we don't have evidence of congestive heart failure so what do we do with that then I have a little bit more time. So I know, okay, whatever's causing this patient's cough, it's not probably life-threatening in the immediate okay. sense. So I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go back and just question that owner a little bit more about the frequency of the cough, the nature of the cough, how, if anything they've done seems to initiate that cough. Because knowing the time of day it happens, knowing if it's a self-limiting cough, if it's progressed over years slowly, or if this is an acute onset, uh, those things are really, really helpful. Um, I think it's a little bit harder just from my own clinical practice of, of trying to get owners to say it's a dry cough versus a wet cough. I think that's hard for them to kind of suss out. So yeah. I don't put too much stock in that comment of, oh, it's dry or it's wet. But is it is it hacking cough? Is it in the morning when they wake up? Is it when they're excited? Is it after they're drinking? Or is it when they're trying to settle down and go to sleep um, and it's all during the night? So those things kind of split my differentials a bit. Okay. So, so when you're seeing coughing first thing in the morning, is that pushing you more towards uh, maybe early congestive heart failure, uh, you know, um, things like that? Or yeah. So, so walk me through that a little bit. Yeah, just say, yeah. if, they, if they say, oh yeah, I hear it early. I, my, my, you know, my training had always been, you know, coughing first thing in the morning is generally a sign of, of heart disease, things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. Coughing when drinking water, what does that tell you? Is it, does that lead you more towards tracheitis, upper respiratory? Like, yeah. What, yeah, yeah. Okay. Walk me through those. So classically, congestive heart failure and heart disease coughs, classically, they happen at night. So we kind of call it a nocturnal dyspnea or a nocturnal cough. It's usually when the heart rate's slower. It's usually when they're trying to rest down. That pressure they put on them, their chest when they lay down in a sternal position, it elevates the heart in the chest and they get this mainstem bronchial compression. And so we can actually see coughing when they're trying to settle down to rest. When they are coughing when they're excited or when they first get up in the morning, I do still think about the heart as a possible differential, but not failure. I think about okay. the sheer size of the heart. Again, the left atrium, it sits right in the middle of the mainstem bronchi where those two uh, bronchi come off of the carina. It sits right in the middle. So when we get severe left atrial enlargement, even if there's not heart failure yet, we see this compression of those bronchi. And so any type of excitement, any type of position change when an owner 
picks them up under the chest because they're a little dog, yeah. it'll initiate a cough cycle. Um, but otherwise, after the drinking tracheitis, um, excitement causing the cough, I'm thinking collapsing trachea, mainstem airway disease. That's where my brain's going. Right. No, that totally makes sense to me. Hey guys, I just want to jump in real quick with a couple of updates. Number one, if you have not seen our transcripts yet, you got to check them out. Banfield, the pet hospital, has stepped up uh, in the name of inclusion, equity, and diversity to help make our content on the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast and the Uncharted Veterinary Podcast open and free and available to everyone in different formats. I could not do this without them. I wanted to make this happen in the past. Uh, they they, they just they answered the bell, and they have made this thing real, and I, I'm so deeply uh, grateful to them. And so anyway, if you want to see transcripts of the podcast, they are there. Check them out. Uh, the Kona Shame podcast transcripts are at drindywork.com. The Uncharted Veterinary podcast transcripts are at unchartedvet.com. Speaking of unchartedvet.com, this week on the Uncharted Veterinary Podcast, my friend Stephanie Goss and I, we have a love letter to all of you practice managers, you medical directors, you practice owners, you head technicians, you head CSR office managers who have leadership things that you need to do, but you don't get to do them because you're always being pulled on the floor. How do you say to your people, I want to help you? But I really do need to do these other things so that our practice runs without them feeling uh, like you're abandoning them or you're turning your back on them. How do you feel okay about that? Guys, that's what we get into. Uh, if this resonates at all with you, you got to check this out. I, I don't I heard anybody else talk about it. We're, Stephanie and I are talking about it a lot because, man, with, uh, with practice being shorthanded and everybody being busy, it is hard to take time to actually do the leadership management things that have to get done. And you can hurt people's feelings when they're like, hey, can you hold this cat or can you put on the lead apron? And you're like, no, I can't. That's hard. Anyway, that's what we're talking about. If that resonates, go over there, check it out. Uh, it's, a, it's a great podcast, if I do say so myself. I really do love it. The only other thing I want to tell you about is on March the 13th, we have a virtual workshop with the one and only Dr. Saya Clement. This is on clientele curation. Guys, there are clients that get you and get your practice. They see you. They see your values. They see what you care about. Uh, they see what your what your worth and your value are, and, and, and they trust you, and, and you understand and see them and those are just your those are your, your great clients they just match up with you in a deep way and guys those they, they tend to be compliant they tend to, to to communicate well with you and you communicate well with them you guys hear each other man those are your clients and and everybody's got different different clients but you have your clients and if you think about them for a second the clients you really love to work with you know who i'm talking about how do you find more of those clients how do you attract those clients who get you, who get your culture, who get your values, who get your worth, who get the way that you communicate, and you enjoy working with them, and they enjoy working with you? Doesn't that, doesn't that sound like heaven? I always used to say, you know, the, the goal of being a veterinarian is not to be book solid. It's to be book solid with people who trust you and who see value in you and who you get and who you understand. Guys, that's what this workshop is all about. It's clientele curation. How do you find your people and convince them that you are the best for them? Uh, I'll put links in the show notes. It's a two-hour workshop. Check it out. Don't miss one. this one. It's going to be great. I, that's enough for me. Let's get back into this episode. Okay, let's walk it back and go back to uh, left-sided heart enlargement that we see. Uh, what if, what if, uh, on the radiographs, let's say that I'm starting to see changes in the heart. Where do you go from there? And, and in Higgins' case, mom and dad love Higgins, and they have some resources, and they're willing to invest them in Higgins. Uh, yeah, how, where where would you take this case? 
Yeah. So if we see cardiomegaly, so we do think that the heart is enlarged, then we kind of have two separate things. Is the heart enlarged, but there's no pulmonary venous distension and there's no pulmonary edema. So we just have enlarged heart, but no congestive heart failure. Well, okay. if he's a typical older Maltese with a chronic murmur, it's left apical systolic, it's probably mitral regurgitation. In those dogs, we do know that even before congestive heart failure happens, if their heart is a significantly uh, enlarged size, we consider them this B2 category of mitral valve disease. And so what that means for us general folk is that starting pimobendin may actually improve some of their clinical signs. So they don't have to be an active congestive heart failure to see benefit from that drug. And it may be that their heart size is just so big, it's actually pushing on their atria. Um, we can see dogs that have syncope or passing out before congestive heart failure. Again, they just have pretty bad disease, but they haven't decompensated yet. So yeah. pimobendin is a trial drug that I'll use for those patients. And if they improve on it, then they stay on that lifelong. Um, if they have a lit big heart, chronic murmur, they're older, the other important diagnostic step that I recommend for general practitioners is a blood pressure. So we're trying to screen for systemic hypertension. I'm actually more worried about hypertensive patients or even pre-hypertensive patients with mitral valve disease than I am for them ever being hypotensive. Because they come in their office and there's tails wagging at you, they're probably not hypotensive, but mm -hmm. screening for that even pre-hypertensive state, having a blood pressure over 150 millimeters of mercury is pre-hypertensive. Okay. Over about 160 millimeters of mercury, we call them systemically hypertensive. And then over about 180 millimeters of mercury, that's pretty significant hypertension that, that we're going to chalk up to more than just them being stressed in the hospital. And the reason that number is so important for us is because it really lets us know what the afterload on that left ventricle is. So if you have a leaky mitral valve and you have high blood pressure, you're actually going to have worsened mitral valve disease because of how much more work that left ventricle is doing. So that's another target for me. If a patient is coughing, has a big heart, big left atrium, no congestive heart failure, but their blood pressure is really high, I might actually start an antihypertensive in that patient and then further work up the cause for the hypertension. So that's a really important diagnostic for a cardiologist is a blood pressure and mitral valve dogs. Now, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to be really honest and vulnerable here and say that blood pressure checks are a weakness in my game and I don't do, I don't check them as often and regularly as I should. Can you give me, uh, can you give me tips for success with canine um, uh, blood pressure checks? Uh, just things that I should have in mind as far as getting good reading, get the best results, getting, getting reliable information. Yeah, of course. So there's two main options that we have in veterinary medicine. We have oscillometric blood pressures. So those are the ones like the little sun techs that are just little machines that you put the cuff on the limb, you push the button, and then it does everything for you. Oscillometrics will give you a systolic, a diastolic, and a mean blood pressure. The most important thing with the oscillometrics is to just make sure the heart rate it's calculating matches the heart rate of the patient. Okay. If those don't match, then it's not a real number. And you can get crazy differences. And so we yeah. always repeat that blood pressure measurement at least three times, sometimes up to five times. The oscillometric's nice because you can leave, you know, the patient in the client's lap and just put the cuff on the limb. On the tail is actually my favorite spot is on the tail. Right. Um, push the button, say, we'll be right back. We're going to and then you can even tell the client to push the button if you want, but you can get those readings and then take the average. 
There's the other method, the Doppler, and the Doppler mm -hmm. is the older method. Um, it's really just a systolic pressure, and it does require a little bit more training, a little bit more skill to use it. But the nice thing with the Doppler is you're hearing the heartbeat, so you know that it's pretty accurate if you have the right size cuff and a technician or a doctor who's comfortable using that technique. Um, but the biggest things are having adequate restraint, making sure the environment's as calm as it can be and the animal's as calm as they can be, and then just making sure you're checking that heart rate, checking that patient, making sure the numbers make sense to you. Cool. Okay. That totally works for me. I think the other kind of big, big tear off. So let's say, again, that was kind of like big heart, but no congestive mm -hmm. heart failure. Um, then it's going to become big heart, but we do think there's congestive heart failure. So if there's active congestive heart failure, the quote unquote emergency therapies are going to be furosemide. So that's tried and true, <laughs> um, yep. pure diuretic. Uh, Lasix, of course, is its other name. Um, and then pemobendin. I really think that pemobendin is underutilized in the emergency setting. So Hemobendin or vetmedin, um, it has two jobs. One thing that it does is it increases heart contractility. The other thing that it does is it reduces the afterload on the heart. So it equates to a lot more blood forwards, less blood backwards. Um, and patients tolerate this very well. They really don't get hypotensive on this drug. The only trouble is it's oral. So you have to be able to get it physically in the animal. And so sometimes the stress is more than it's worth. So at the end, you can always fall back to furosemide or Lasix. It's available by mouth. You can give it injectable IV, IM, or even subcutaneously if you need to. Um, but gotcha. I, my typical dog dose of Lasix is two milligrams per kilogram, IV, IM, subq, PO, whatever route you want to give it. Um, and then um, oxygen, my mentor always told me there's no contraindication to oxygen unless the patient's on fire. So um, right. oxygen is never wrong. <laughs> oxygen, sedation, Lasix, never, never wrong. Um, and then usually we're trying to get a dose of hemobendin in the short term. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, talk to me a little bit about ACE inhibitors. Uh, is is that something that you reach for fairly early, uh, or or I mean, or at all anymore? So in the in the emergency case, I'm looking at this dog. Uh, you know, the classic therapy I was taught. You know, obviously I was I was when Pima Bindin was brand new when I was coming out of vet school, uh, and so it was Lasix and an ACE inhibitor. Uh, is has has that thought changed? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. So there's I, there's kind of like two camps, I would say, people that are very, very motivated to use ACE inhibition whenever they can. Um, it makes sense, I think, theoretically. The frustration, frustration that I have as a cardiologist is, try as we might, we don't have that like hefty piece of literature that shows that it makes a difference in the emergency setting or even in the preclinical setting. So Unlike the EPIC and the PROTECT studies that looked at pimobendin in the preclinical uh, heart disease cases, don't have that same evidence in enalapril, benazapril, or spironolactone. So especially with mitral valve disease, I'd say it's a little bit different when we get to DCM. But um, so in the asymptomatic heart disease, I don't routinely use ACE inhibitors. I use them if I have a pre-hypertensive patient because okay. maybe I'll get a little bit of afterload reduction, a little bit of drop in blood pressure, so that'll help. Um, in the congestive heart failure patient, we do know that makes a difference in their long-term survival. So it's not a drug that I consider emergent, like giving that dose of enalapril then and there in the emergency room is not gonna make the difference for that patient, but long-term, absolutely. I try to get them all on it. Um, there's enalapril, benazapril, a common question I get is, is one better than the other? 
No, right. one's not better than okay. the other. It's purely preference. Um, Benazapril may last a little longer in the bloodstream. So maybe you can get away with once a day dosing instead of twice a day dosing. Um, but both have similar risks of azotemia developing in these patients. It's very, very low risk, but it's still enough that we always recommend checking renal values before starting. Um, ACE inhibitors also, I don't like giving them to patients that aren't eating or feeling very well, just because it can kind of further worsen that nausea and appetence. Um, but enalapril or benazapril is great. Um, spironolactone, that's an aldosterone antagonist. We all learn as a potassium sparing diuretic. It does do those things, but it's an aldosterone antagonist. Also has great benefits. So emergency drugs for me, Lasix and Pemo, long-term management, some type of ACE inhibition, and some type of aldosterone antagonist, which is usually spironolactone. Can you um, talk to me a little bit? So we're going down this sort of emergency rabbit hole, but but I really love it. So I want to go a little bit deeper. Okay. Um, so, so yeah. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about, about sort of follow-up care? So we're doing two mix per gig of uh, furosemide. We're uh, trying to get the coughing sort of under control. Mm -hmm. um, is it dose to effect? I mean, are you watching for coughing and you were going to read? I, mean, I know I know the dosing range on furosemide or Lasix is, is pretty large. And I always look at that. And it's something like <laughs> 2 to yeah. 12 it's, milligrams per yeah. kilogram. Well, it's a little unhelpful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So so, uh, so, so I'm kind of like, we're going to do a little bit and then we're going to watch and see. And, mm -hmm. and then and can, can you give me some guidance there? Help me, Maybe help me make that less uh gut instinct and, and and give me some give me some things I can put my feet on. Yeah, absolutely. So again, I think for dogs, two milligrams per kilogram is a very appropriate starting dose. If you have an animal that is, you know, coughing and a little bit tachypnic, you can probably wait another few hours before redosing them, but you're going to have to treat every animal a little different as it comes in. So you, you'll kind of use your clinical judgment for that. The nice thing about Lasix is that it works pretty quick. So if you give an injectable dose of the drug, I would expect the urine production to peak within an hour of giving that drug. So if that animal makes urine, urinates, has a big bladder after about an hour, then you know your dose did its job. Now, usually got to go let them pee because <laughs> then they're uncomfortable holding their bladder. But mm -hmm. once you've done that, you're in the right direction. Then usually you can consider redosing them. So if their coughing hasn't gotten any better, honestly, the most important monitoring for these dogs is their respiratory rate. So their respiratory rate is what I use in the clinic, and it is what I use for clients at home. A normal resting respiratory rate in a dog or a cat really should be below 30 breaths in a minute. We give them a little bit of leeway and say less than 40 breaths per minute is a normal resting respiratory rate in the hospital. So I'm targeting that number. So if I give my dose of Lasix, wait the hour, the urine is made, the dog pees, and we're still having a respiratory rate higher than 40, doesn't include panting, but true resting respiratory rate, I'm going to redose and we're going to keep going until we get to that lower rate. I would say most dogs that come in with respiratory signs that are very mild and it's just kind of coughing probably need about four to six migs per kg their first day of congestive okay. heart failure. Um, the ones that come in for tachypnea, like that's the sign that the owners know, they're going to need more like eight, 10 ish mig per kg their first day. But then once you get that edema gone and they're breathing comfortably, their respiratory rates are less than 40 again, that's when we transition to an oral maintenance dose, which is usually going to be about two mg per keg. BID is a very common, very appropriate starting dose for dogs. Okay. That's awesome. That is super helpful. Um, I'm going to jump back real quick back to Higgins, um, undiagnosed uh, heart heart disease at, at this mm -hmm. at this time. Um 
any final pearls of advice for me, any words of wisdom, anything I want to make sure I don't mess up, any pitfalls I should look out for as I go and kind of re-engage with this case and start to take it forward? Yeah, I think I think the most important diagnostic you've already done, which is the chest x-rays in your physical exam. Blood pressure would be the other diagnostic to consider. And then you can always offer blood work. But if you've ruled out the life-threatening causes of the cough, that's the first important step. I would say in terms of client education and potential trial therapies to do because they want the cough to stop is have them start counting respiratory rates at home. Make sure that number stays below 40. I would say in terms of trial therapies, things that we'd say, if we don't know, we're just assuming it's mitral valve disease, but we've done the RADS. We know that it's not congestive heart failure. Trial therapies for cough, usually trial of doxycycline, just treating anti-inflammatory treating potential mycoplasma infections, those kinds of things. Then my next step is considering a tapering dose of steroids. So low dose, but tapering dose of steroids, whether that's Temeril P or truly prednisone, um, and then cough suppression. It's kind of sometimes the thing we're last, last with left. So um, always considering that as kind of our, our final thing. But if you've done the important part of ruling out congestive heart failure and the animal's otherwise stable, then you have some time to think and to work. What's your, uh, what's your favorite cough suppressant? Uh, my go-to is, is hydrocodone. I do hit them pretty okay. hard. Um, we're having shortages again. So Lamotil yeah. is another one. Um, it still is controlled though. Lamotil is still a controlled drug. Getting some shortages of that as we see everyone going to Lamotil now that hydrocodone's on, on a little bit of a shortage. But those two drugs are the ones I have the most success with truly suppressing the cough. Dr. Mack, you are amazing. Um, do you have any recommendations for people who are just like, man, that cardiology is amazing and I would love to learn more. What is your, what's your favorite resource for people to go and just and just brush up their game? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that we need to do better and make more. Um, I'm spoiled and I've just been surrounded by very intelligent people that have it all figured <laughs> out. So I just go down the hall and have a chat. Um, but I would say there's, if you just want some more questions about like the physiology and hemodynamics, honestly, <laughs> I laugh when I say this, but there's a, a gentleman called Ninja Nerd. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but I'm he's, he's, a, he's a human uh, like uh, person, uh, physician's assistant. And he has these amazing YouTube videos that he just draws on whiteboards and just talk like, anything, anything. This is how I studied for boards <laughs> was Ninja Nerd. You, you uh, listened to Ninja Nerd yeah, to did. study for your I cardiology did. boards. But, okay. But, um, I'm sold. but, but even, even for other stuff, but it, it just, if you just want to hear it in a different way from a different person, um, a lot of cardiology between species is the same. So you can go to human resources. It doesn't have to be veterinarian. Um, I think there's a lot of good posts on Ben, um, honestly, and message boards there. But yeah. um, my goal is to make some more resources because I think that it's it's something it's a topic that's intimidating for a lot of people, um, but it's one I love. So <laughs> whatever I can do. You let me know when you get that up and going, and yeah. I'm happy to to support you as I can. You, as I said, you are amazing. I'm going to put links. I wanted to check out some Ninja Nerd videos, and I'll put some links <laughs> in the show notes for people who want to check it out. Thank you so much for being here. You are really amazing. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that is our episode. Guys, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. If you did, as always, the kindest thing you can do is leave us an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. It really means the world to me. It's how people find the uh, find the podcast. It's it's nice feedback for me and my team and all the hard work that we do. So, guys, that's it. Uh, take care of yourselves. Be well. I'll talk to you soon.